You can open your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're taking a break in the book of James this morning because uh, it's a new year. It's the first Sunday of the new year. And so if you're here this morning, you know this to be true, that God has granted you at least a sliver of one more year of life. <laughs> I don't know how much more of this year he'll give you, but he's given you this much. I know last week I preached on the folly of, taking, of making vows but I have a different category in my mind for a resolution. Resolved. I think it's good to be introspective and to look at your Christian life and to recognize that God has given you a new year. And so for you to chart your course with discipline and integrity in this year, for you to purpose in your heart that you will run your Christian race in this year. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning from 1 Corinthians, the end of chapter 9. When I was in second grade, our school had a field day. Maybe you remember what those were back when schools had them before moms had to sign waivers for everything. The kids would gather out on the field and there would be different athletic events and we were not allowed to choose our own events. They were chosen for us and I was drafted by our teacher into the three-legged race. Nothing in field day is as humiliating as the three-legged race for a second grader. I find my leg lashed together with some total stranger. I had, I don't know, probably been classmates with him for a couple years at this point, but I barely knew the guy, okay? And now we're tied together at the hip and we're forced to meander across the soccer field in some kind of ill-conceived race as entertainment, I think, for the school administrators. We were in the second or third heat of this and we couldn't help but notice that the other racers all seemed to have a bit of a uh, deficiency after the, the heat was over. The field looked like some kind of NASCAR catastrophe, just, you know, human bodies of second graders strewn everywhere in piles. And so me and my teammate, we had a different plan. We remembered the story from when we were kids that slow and steady wins the race, and we were naive enough to believe that. And so we decided we were going to go out there and just go slow, okay? Left, right left that's going to be the plan except for you then right left left you know we, we figured it out and there we go the gun sounded the thousands of fans were cheering this is how I remember it at least <laughs> and we make our way across the field and we certainly had the slow and steady parts down pat I think chronologically we were the last to cross the finish line but that's not what was important we finished upright I tell you <laughs> upright we were probably the only ones that did not fall and I, because of that, I was positive that we had won. And this was misconception was reinforced by the fact that in front of our whole class, the teacher called me and my friend up and gave us a ribbon. Upon closer examination, the ribbon did indeed say participants. <laughs> but that did not stop my dad from tacking it to my bedroom wall, where it probably remains to this very day, as far as I know. And the Bible has a lot of metaphors to give you about the Christian life. It describes a Christian life as you being a shining star in the world, to you being branches on a vine, to you being strangers and pilgrims. The Bible describes Christians living their life as being farmers at work or travelers or sojourners. Soldiers is an analogy Paul often uses. Businessmen is one that Jesus uses. But here in 1 Corinthians 9, we find the most common metaphor in the Bible for the Christian life, that of a runner, that of an athlete, and in order to appreciate what Paul means by this metaphor, you have to understand some differences between how we perceive of running and how the Romans perceived of running. 
first of all, our concept of running is closer to the second grade field day than it is to the Olympics. But the Olympics came out of this Greek environment. The Isthmus Games were what was held in Corinth every two years, and this was the highlight of their culture. The runners, the athletes that excelled in this game, they were the cultural heroes. You know, a better analogy than perhaps running here might be the NFL. You know, in our culture, we understand that nobody can just show up at FedEx Stadium on a Sunday afternoon to play football. (laughs) That it takes a life of preparation, a life of dedication. It takes sacrifices in how you live, where you go to school. You're sacrificing your whole life to get the opportunity to make it into the NFL. And then when you seize it, it's not a walk in the park. That's how the Corinthians understood running. A race in their minds had winners and losers. It had discipline. It had integrity to it. It had a life of sacrifice to get you to be able to even participate. A real athlete will diligently train for years to get this opportunity, sternly discipline his body, take advantage of any opportunity he has to make himself faster. A real athlete wakes up early in the morning, gets out of bed before the paperboy comes, runs until he thinks his lungs are going to explode, and then runs some more. Athletes in general, not just runners, but athletes, professional athletes in general, lead a different kind of lifestyle than other people do. They wake up earlier, they eat better, they exercise more, and they work harder than normal people. They lead a severely disciplined lifestyle. In one sense, when you become a professional athlete, your discipline, your self-discipline becomes your livelihood. Let me give you this example of it. For you this afternoon, if you were to be minding your own business and encounter a milkshake, (laughs) you might have this debate in your head. "Mm, Should I drink the milkshake? Yes, so good. But no, I don't need the calories. The calories aren't worth it. I'm trying to watch my weight and uh, I don't feel good after I have that much sugar. uh, That kind of debate is what goes on in your mind. And so you might decide yes for the milkshake or you might decide no for the milkshake because you're concerned about the calories and how you look kind of thing. Different realm than the professional athlete views it. (laughs) For their mind, if they lose self-control in their eating, it could cost them their job. It could cost them their, their livelihood. It could cost them their edge. All of which is important to their own sense of calling and identity in a different world than counting calories. When a person makes a decision to become that kind of athlete, it's a life course they're setting themselves on. They're counting the cost. They're willing to make the sacrifice for years if that's what it takes. An Olympic athlete sacrifices his own freedom and his training schedule for for years in order to qualify. He doesn't get to go where he wants to go. He doesn't get to vacation with his family. He sets his life apart for it to make the team. Something that always infuriates me is when I hear someone say, you know, I could have played college sports. I just lacked the discipline. I had the skills. I just lacked the discipline. What? (laughs) That's what it means to be able to play college sports. It's it's like saying I could have been president. I just didn't have the votes. (laughs) I could have made it big if I just had discipline. What are you talking about? This is why the Bible uses this analogy of a runner. Because the Corinthians would understand that for you to compete in those games, you have the discipline. You have the work ethic. You're willing to give up the things in this world and the things in this life to excel at this game. That's why the metaphor of a runner is used all over the Bible. Psalm 119 verse 32. uh, The psalmist says, I will run in the way of your commandments as you enlarge my heart. 
Romans 9, verse 16, and again, Romans 15, verse 30, both use the running analogy. And it's interesting because it's in the context of election in Romans 9. Romans 9 says salvation does not depend upon man who wills or man who runs, but upon God whom calls. Now notice this sets the running metaphor apart in the Bible. The Bible never describes salvation as something you work for. The Bible never describes salvation as something you train for and you get yourself good enough to participate in. There's no qualification for salvation. So that's what Paul means in Romans 9, that you are not training so that you can run. Salvation does not depend upon man who runs but it depends on God who calls. However, when sanctification comes into play, then it is all about your efforts. Paul says, Romans 15, verse 30, I urge you to strive together. That word strive, it's a, it's a running term. Strive together with me in prayer. Colossians 1, verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present to everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, again, that running metaphor, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, when I'm talking about sanctification, I am running my heart out. I'm running like my life depends upon it. I'm toiling. I'm trying to find any energy I have to reach further ahead. In fact, when Paul describes John the Baptist's life. He summarizes John the Baptist's life and he says, his, when he gets to his martyrdom in Acts 13, he says, John finished the race that was set out for him. He had run his race. That's how he says that John got martyred. His race was over. Obviously, this would be a metaphor the Corinthians are familiar with. They had something that was basically the same as our modern day Olympics, the Isthmus Games. They happened every two years there. People would come from all over the empire to watch the games. They had some of the events that are still in the Olympics today, wrestling, boxing, javelin, discus. But the highlight of the Olympics, the highlight was the long distance races, the marathon. The marathon, even though the games would take place over the, a week or so, the marathon always happened the last day. It would start in a stadium. The stadium could seat tens of thousands of people built up like this. There's a track in the middle, not a big oval track like we would think of uh, today, but a much more narrow track. And you run two directions. You run down and there's a hard corner and you run back almost right alongside. There's just a little median in the way. The runners would start at one side of the stadium, almost enter the stadium with their, their running. They would run around the whole crowd and then run out the stadium to the race. As they run out the stadium, they run the course that's marked out. It could take an hour, two hours, depending on how the course was laid out. And they enter back into the stadium at the end of the race. And this is a day without live tweeting. There's no sports center back then. <laughs> so once the runners leave the stadium, nobody knows who's in first place. The people who are in the stadium, they don't know how the race is going. They don't know who's in front. The guy who was in front when they left the stadium might not even still be in the race when they get back. And so there's this sense of anticipation and excitement that builds up in the stadium when the runners first come back in. You, the first time you lay eyes on them, that's the first person you see. They're in first. And then you're wondering who's going to be next. Has he outrun everybody? Is there anybody coming behind? And they enter this, as they enter the stadium, the prize is on the left side. They run down the right side. As they come in the stadium, they can see the prize. They just have one lap to go. They run across the whole crowd. If anybody else comes in the stadium, they can pursue them. They got that one last lap to catch them. That's the race in Corinth. This is the analogy that Paul uses to compare it to the Christian life. And I want to get an outline from it this morning. Four descriptions of the Christian life as a race. Four ways the Christian life 
is like a race. Let me read the passage. It's 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through 27. Paul asks a question at the beginning. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should not be, I myself should be disqualified. Paul lays out the Christian life as a race here. The first comparison to race is it is demanding. The Christian life is demanding. If you set yourself out to lead the life of a runner or of an Olympic athlete, you know that it will be challenging. It's not a passive endeavor. Nobody accidentally qualifies for the Olympics. And the same thing is true in the Christian life. The Bible never describes the Christian life as passive. It never describes sanctification as something that just happens to you. You exert yourself. The Christian life is one of active endurance and perseverance. It is compared in the Bible to fighting, to boxing, to striving, to being a soldier, to running a race. It is never described in the Bible as let go and let God. It is always described as fighting the fight of your life, as running the race of your life, as be killing sin or it will be killing you. Yes, you trust Christ for your salvation. He is your strength. Again, you need to understand the difference between salvation and sanctification. This is not about salvation. You don't train to get saved. It happens to you. And then you don't accidentally get sanctified. You pursue it with everything that is in you, and it is demanding. Christ is your strength. He is the object of your faith. You rest in him as far as your faith goes. But view it this way. He's your coach. He teaches you how to fight. He teaches you how to throw the punch against sin. He teaches you who to fight. He teaches you what sins to kill. He's the one who convicts you of sin, but you're the one who does the fighting. You're the one who does the fist throwing. You're the one who goes to war. Nowhere in the Bible is there this idea that you sit back and let Christ run your race for you. He freed you from sin so that you could run. Sin was shackling you down. You can't run with a weight shackled to your leg. Sin was your shackle. You didn't have the freedom to run. You were tied to sin. And Christ breaks the chain and gives you freedom and sets you off on your race. He didn't free you from sin so that you could relax spiritually and call your laziness holiness. He frees you from sin to exert yourself. You know, like any race, there are rules to be followed, a track to be run, there's a prize to be gained, there's daunting obstacles, there's a threat of injury, there's danger seemingly at every corner. This is a hard race. It's hard because our religion does not consist of empty platitudes, of just theological ideas that exist in the mind but not in the world, of philosophies that are fun to talk about but not to live out. Our religion consists in passions of the heart, of convictions that motivate our life, of fighting sin that dwells in the world that threatens our sanctification and threatens us spiritually. That's where the Christian race is seen. That's where it's run. The Christian race is hard because it's a run. It's not a walk. It's described as the Christian race, not the Christian walk-a-thon. You ever have a kid try to raise money for doing a -a walk-a-thon, knock on your door? Hey, would you 
pledge my walkathon? Hey, jog, okay? <laughs> Why is the race so hard? Because you're running, you're exerting yourself. There's discipline to it. There's rules laid out in the word of God for how you're supposed to run. Guidelines for how you're supposed to live your life. And we don't like those guidelines. That makes it hard. We love the law of entropy. We want to sit back and just chill and let the world do its thing. But spiritually, that leads to decay and it does not lead to sanctification. It's not a race. The Bible lays out how we're supposed to run our race. It commands us to pursue Christ. And these rules require self-discipline. Now the context, we're just parachuting into 1 Corinthians 9, but the context here is critical. In chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul lists all these different freedoms he could take advantage of, but he's saying no to for the sake of advancing the gospel. He says that he could take a wife, but he's not going to for the sake of advancing the gospel. He could make the Corinthians pay him, but he's not going to for the sake of advancing the gospel. He could eat the meat from the marketplace, even if it was offered to an idol, but he's not going to for the sake of advancing the gospel. He could detach himself from the law of Moses and live absent that law, but he's not going to for the sake of advancing the gospel. This is the context in chapter 9 where it's one of our favorite verses. Uh, I can do all things, I become all things to all people for the sake of winning some. And we justify that to, we use that verse to justify licentious living by saying, oh, I can do this to win people to do that. This verse is always used the opposite way. It's always meant the opposite way in the Bible. Becoming all things to all people means sacrificing freedoms, giving up freedoms for the sake of reaching people for the gospel. Paul says, I I could take a wife. I'm not going to so I can reach more people. I could get paid by the Corinthians. I'm not going to. That's what it means to lead the Christian life. Now, it doesn't mean that your sacrifices will be the same as Paul's. You don't have his calling. You're not in his culture. He had a different set of sacrifices. But it does mean that the Christian life will have sacrifices. Paul could eat food offered to idols, but he won't. He could be free from the restrictions of the law, but he won't. When you become a Christian, understand that you're embarking on a similar race as Paul's. Not the same sacrifices, but the same kind of training. The sacrifices will be different, but they will still be real. You have to ask yourself, to use the analogy in in, uh, verse 25, exercising self-control over all things. You have to use the analogy, who works for whom in the relationship between you and your body? Do you work for your body or does your body work for you? Who bosses whom around? When your body says, "Mm, milkshake, do you say, okay, whatever you say? Your body says, go to sleep. Whatever you say, body. Your body says, sleep more. Okay, you're the boss. If you act like that, you're not going to be a good athlete. Now, Paul's point here in this connection, in this analogy, is that the Christian life is similar. Not that you need to count your calories in the Christian life. Not that you need to get up early to go running in the Christian life. But yes, that you need to get your body and its passions under control. You need to recognize that your body is your slave, not the other way around. Your body says, do this. You say, hey, consult the flowchart, body. You work for me. I'm not taking orders from you. You take orders from me. That's the analogy. To pursue sanctification, you have to get your passions. You have to get your lusts. You have to get your desires under control and subservient to you. That's why the race is hard. It's not easy to do. Athletes train at it all the time. That's why there's so few athletes like this. It's something you spend your life doing. 
Beyond that, the race is hard because it's long. This is not a sprint. This is not a 40-yard dash. Turning from sin and into the arms of Christ is the start of your race, but it's only the starting gun that launches you. Your conversion launches you into this race, but this race lasts the rest of your life. (laughs) Somebody told me something last week I can't get out of my mind. They said, skydiving is easy because if your parachute doesn't work, you have the rest of your life to figure it out. I'll give you two more seconds. The Christian race is easy. It only lasts the rest of your life. (laughs) You know, in the context of eternity, it's a short race. But in the context of your life, it takes the whole time. And the difficulty of this race doesn't come from the speed in which you run it, but from the fact that it requires endurance. It's not a sprint. You know, some people will never be good sprinters no matter how much they train. There's genetic factors in play that you cannot overcome. But over the course of distance, it neutralizes those factors. If you put in the right amount of training and the right discipline, you can run a marathon. It takes the training. It takes years sometimes from some people of training, but you can get there. To use a soccer analogy, because I'm more familiar with that. (laughs) A small field in soccer, because not all fields are the same size, a small field in soccer neutralizes skill. You play in a small field, you may as well flip a coin. It's like pinball. Anything can happen. Any team can win. But you get a big field, and now the better team is going to win. The bigger the field, the more the best team has an advantage. This is the nature of the Christian life. The longer the race, the more your passion for Christ comes into play. The longer the race, the more your discipline, the more your integrity, the more your love for the Lord sanctifies you. It's also a hard race, not just because you have to run and it lasts your whole life and there's rules, but it's a hard race because the course is marked out by suffering. It's not a walk in the park. There's not candy stands at every corner. As you run this race, you will endure the scorn of the world and the suffering of the world. It's the same course that Jesus ran, and his course led him to the cross. Yours can as well. If you follow this course, it will be hard, and you cannot feign surprise. There's no shortcuts to sanctification. You can't bypass the parts of the Christian life that are hard. When I was a high school teacher, I was coaching high school soccer also, and the athletic director came to my classroom one day. And asked me if I would be a referee for a cross-country meet. And I said no. And he said, consult the flowchart. So I said yes. Now I had experience refereeing soccer. I had experience refereeing basketball. And so I thought, hey, one more sport to add to my resume. I guess I'll go along with it. Do I get a yellow card? No. Hmm. Whistle? No. What do I get to do? Well, I get to stand under a tree and make sure the runners stay on the path. And this path starts up on a hill at this school. The cross-country meet started up in this little, in L.A., we called it a mountain. Here it's about the size of this stage. They start up on it and they, they run down it and they would then run around the school, then out in the neighborhood, back. They'd come back down the hill. This is the key part. This is where I come in. When they come back down the hill the second time, they're supposed to run around the school and then into the soccer field. If they skipped the around the school part, it would shave like three minutes off their time, but it would be cheating. So I was supposed to stand there and make sure that everybody that came down the hill ran around the school and no one just dodged into the soccer field. That's my job. Awful refereeing, awful. I mean, so boring. I cannot believe it. Until the end of the race, I see the kid who cheats from Campbell Hall, some Episcopal school in L.A. 
He comes down the hill, comes into the parking lot, and dodges into the soccer field. He wins the race. He was not the first person down the hill, but he's the first person to cross the finish line. And the people in the soccer field, they can't see the hill. I'm the only one who sees this happen. I'm like, ah, where's my yellow card? I'm out of my element here. I don't know what to do. So I run and go tell the athletic director, and he denies it. He says, no, I ran the race. Of course I ran the race. And so they asked him some questions, like, are there school buses on the other side of the school? And he didn't know the answer. <laughs> Cheater! Don't cheat the Christian race. You cannot lead the Christian life thinking that you will just dodge out on the parts that require sacrifice. Dodge out on the parts that require commitment. Dodge out on the parts that require you to get the scorn of the world. If you're going to follow the course that Jesus ran, be prepared for it to inflict hardships on you. 2 Timothy 2 verse 5, Paul says this, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. A basic truism. You cheat, you don't get the crown. In the Roman games, an athlete who cheated, he didn't lose his citizenship. He just disgraced it. And that's all the punishment that was required. First, the Christian life is like a race because it's demanding. Second, because there's a prize at the end. There's a prize at the end. And that's what Paul gets at in verse 24. In a race, all the runners run. Only one receives the prize. Runs so that you may obtain it. And he doesn't mean that only one Christian gets to heaven when they die. He's, the analogy here is that in a race, all the runners are exerting themselves for the prize. You lead the, your life the same way. And he, he makes that clear in verse 25 because an athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. They would get this little wreath that goes in their head and it's, it's green and covered with ivy and it's got flowers in it and stuff. But the ivy dies. The flowers fall. You can't water a wreath. <laughs> And so you crown, you win the race, you put the crown on. When you show back up at the games in two years as the returning champion, you don't bring your wreath with you. And there were other prizes also that the, the Romans could get. If a slave ran the games and he won, he was given his freedom. If a non-citizen played in the games and he won, he was given citizenship. Anybody who won got fame and perceived immortality. But all of that stuff was just perceived. It was all failing. It was all, as Paul says here, perishable. But when you pursue Christ, you're pursuing an imperishable prize. An imperishable prize. We live for eternity. The things that we get as we pursue Christ will not be decayed in this world. They will not be corrupted by moth, rust, or worms. They cannot be stolen because they're guarded in heaven for us. And the prize in a game is what motivates the athlete to compete. The allure of the prize and the recognition of winning and of doing better, that's what motivates the athlete. As I said, when they entered the stadium, they could see the wreath over there. And not just the wreath, but next to the wreath was the dignitary, the king or the governor, whoever, and then the, the, the mayor of the town and the leader of the race. They were sitting on a platform. In front of them was the wreath. And so the runners run in and they have the full final lap to look at the prize and the prize draws them magnetically towards it. They win the race from that stand there called the Bema stand. The, they would be, the wreath would be placed on them. This is Paul's analogy in 2 Corinthians 5, that we will all die and stand before the judgment seat, the bema seat of Christ, to be rewarded for the deeds done in the flesh, both good and empty or meaningless. Meaning that as you lead your Christian life, you are earning reward for yourself. And when you die, Christ gives you the reward. 
He tells you, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. And I've heard people say, oh, it's not right to, to pursue sanctification for a reward. That's a bad motive. It's not a bad motive. Jesus gives it as a motive. He says, store up for yourself treasure in heaven. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded by him. Don't fill your life with meaningless things, but with meaningful things. That means that you have to pursue this prize. The prize, of course, is Christ himself. It's a privilege of serving Christ in the kingdom. Different degrees of serving him in the kingdom. That's the prize that he rewards us. It's knowing him and being with him. And there's degrees of that. And so you pursue those prizes. Philippians 3, verse 13. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call in God in Christ Jesus. This is all running words again. Notice that in Philippians 3. Paul says, I'm straining. I'm pressing on. I don't care who's behind me. I don't care the course I ran in the past. It's in the past. I'm pressing forward to the goal of seeing Christ Jesus. You haven't obtained that yet. Our outer man's decaying. But the inner man is being renewed by the power of the prize, wanting to lay hold of Christ. Now, here's the fascinating thing about this race. As you pursue that prize, that prize changes you. And that leads to the third point. First, the race is demanding. Second, there's a prize. Third, the Christian life gets you into shape. (laughs) If you train for a race, it has the, the secondary effect of not just preparing you for the race, but of getting you in better shape. You're training for the Marine Corps Marathon or, or whatever. It, it, it helps you get into shape. Just the process of training. The Christian life is like that. As you fix your eyes on the prize and you pursue Christ, you begin to be transformed into the image of Christ. The more you look at the prize, and here's where the analogy of a marathon breaks down. The more you look at the prize in the Christian life, the more you become like it. <laughs> the more you fix your eyes on Jesus, the more you become like him. If you obey the rules of the race, you become like the king of the race. You start to take on his image more and more. This is the put off, put on approach to sanctification. A runner has got to let down the things that slow him down. A runner's got to let go of the things that are, are weighing him down. <laughs> I recently got a new bicycle and I saw that the bicycle I had, there was a carbon one. You know, same size and everything, but it was carbon. Fi- I got steel, and there was a carbon frame one that was three pounds more, weighed three pounds more than mine. But it was like seven hundred dollars more than mine. And I asked the guy, "Is it worth it?" And he said, "Well, let me tell you it this way: for seven hundred dollars, you could probably figure out a way to, to lose three pounds." <laughs> that was an epiphany to me right there. <laughs> I don't care about the pedals; I don't lose weight. A runner sets things down that slow him down a runner doesn't run you know the expression a runner doesn't run you know holding his clothes in his hand he doesn't run with the tv in his hands he doesn't run holding his cat you know he sets things down he sets things down to run faster and this is the nature of the christian life it sanctifies you you let go of things that slow your race down and people get fixated on you know does the bible say that sin doesn't say that sin, that means I can do it. Well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 9. There are things that are okay to do for some people that are not okay to do, for you to do if you're running your race. If, you have, if you're friends with a certain person and that person is hindering your sanctification, 
There's no Bible passage that says you, it's a sin to be friends with person X. So the passage doesn't say that. But if person X is slowing down your race, then break off the friendship and run faster. A bag of gold will slow a runner down as much as a bag of lead. There are some things that are even good in the world that slow you down that you have to let go of. And this is where our culture comes into play. Our culture tries to convince you you need this kind of job with this kind of salary and this kind of demands on your life in order for you to have a good self-image, in order for you to, you know, to feel good about yourself before your, your family and your kids. And that is nonsense. You run your race before God. There are things, you know, if there's a, a job that you might take that would, would slow your race down, don't take it. If there's a job that will hinder your race, get rid of that job. It's better to run your race fast than to do something that culture appreciates. And you might say, well, there's no place in the Bible that says taking this job over here is sin. Okay. But does it slow you down? Yes, it could be good. There could be lots of people that could do that job well and it would be fine for them. But for you, will it slow your race down? And if it will, let it go. And don't just let it go for its own sake. sake. You have to pick up sanctification in its place. This is the put off, put on approach to sanctification. You can't just give up milkshakes and become an athlete, okay? You have to give up milkshakes and then train. Otherwise, vegans would be Olympic champions. (laughs) I remember once this, I worked for a landscaping company, The Cutting Edge. We were pretty proud of that name that we came up with. Our phone number really was 505-TURF. And we got hired by some lady to clean out her front yard. Her front yard, the grass had died and there were weeds and it was overgrown and landscaping had fallen apart and she wanted just dirt. She wanted it cleared out. And so we rented a front end loader, like one of those big yellow things that comes in the back of a, you know, semi truck. And we took out everything from her front yard, bulldozed it, left a dirt field, raked the field at the end. There was nothing there except raked dirt. Mission accomplished. She pays us. We go home. We get a call from her a couple months later and she's upset. She wants some of her money back because weeds had grown back in her yard weeds were in her yard she had this idea that had we gotten them by the roots they wouldn't come back and believe me we got them by the front end loader we got them by the roots you know a nuclear holocaust couldn't have killed more weeds than we did there it's just you live in a fallen world you have a dirt field weeds will grow seeds come there it's not our fault the christian life can be like that You're watching too much rubbish on television? Turn it off. But you can't just turn it off. You have to replace it with having spiritual conversations with your your wife, having spiritual conversations with your kid, reading the Bible. You have to put on in sanctification. Putting on running shorts and standing in your front yard does not make you a runner. You have to train. Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Fourth, the way that the Christian life is like a race is because you can lose (laughs) Not everyone who starts finishes this race. You can lose this race. Not everybody running will get the prize. Now you have to look at this from two angles. There's a theological angle and the practical angle. Two sides of the same coin. The theological angle of this, nobody can lose their salvation. The Bible is clear about that because salvation does not, as I said earlier, depend upon man who wills or man who runs, but upon God who saves. 
God sets his affection on you. He saves you. He seals you with his Holy Spirit. He's not going to forget about you. Nevertheless, flip that coin over. Nevertheless, not everybody who identifies outwardly with the church is genuinely converted. There's lots of wheat and tares that grow together. The tares grow up in the wheat fields. John says it this way. People leave the church. They go out from us to demonstrate that they were never really of us. In other words, there's people who are part of the church that are not genuinely converted. They may even have all the right words with their lips. They might say, Lord, Lord, left and right, day and night. But when they die and stand before God for judgment, Jesus will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There are those that on the outside look like Christians, but on the inside have never been converted. They don't have an authentic love or an authentic true faith for Christ. Now, how do you keep yourself from being in that category of people? How do you know if you're in that category of people? The, the only identifiable mark of true conversion of wheat versus tares is a love for Christ. That's it. That's it. But for various cultural reasons and family reasons, there are those that associate with Christ for reasons other than love for him. They go to church, but it's not because they love him. And because of that, there are those that will start the race and quit the race. They will start running on the track but they won't come back. They'll leave the stadium of the group, but they don't circle back in. It's a sobering reality. I mean, even think of a church, church's high school group. You look at a high school group with, I know my wife had a high school group in Los Angeles, probably 200 students in the high school group, and they were all close to each other. And it wasn't that transitory of a church. So they grew up kind of together. And yet it's just a handful of those people that are still following the Lord now. And it's true with any high school group. I, I tell this to the high school students when I, when I talk to them. You know, if you look around the room, five, ten years from now, we wonder who in this room is still going to be following Christ. Not everyone who starts the race finishes it. And that's what Paul means in verse 27. I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Some people will start and then stop. Sidelined by the world, sidelined by sin, sidelined by the devil. But take encouragement from this. The race is winnable. Others have run it. Others have won it. Everybody in Hebrews 11 ran and won. And they're waiting to be crowned for you as well. This is the kind of race where the other runners have finished and they're lined up at the finish line cheering you in. The prize is heaven. The track is life. The starting line is salvation. The finish line is not visible. But we know it's ahead of us. You don't know when it will come. You don't know when you'll round the final corner. But you will. And when you do, you should be able to say at the end of your life, like Paul says at the end of his, I have fought the good faith. I have finished the race. I have kept up the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Notice that there Paul uses the language of the race. I've run the race. I've fought the fight. I get the prize the judge will give to me. Again, you don't run against other Christians. Don't trip other Christians <laughs> so that you get ahead of them. No, everybody who's a Christian is running the race and will finish the race. But there are those on the track who lack real faith. Let me tell you this, the sacrifice is worth it. There's never been a man with a gold medal around his neck who says, ah, I don't know if it was all worth it at the end. I'm an Olympic champion, but man, I wish I would have had that milkshake. You think, what would it take to get somebody to lead that kind of sacrificial life? And the motivation to leading the Christian life, there's only one motivation, love for Jesus. 
that you recognize that your sin separates you from God and that God sent Jesus to live your life and die your sin. He led a sinless life and he died bearing the penalty for your sin. And so that takes away the gap between you and God by God standing himself in the gap. And if you, put, if you believe that, if you believe that sin is your biggest problem and Christ is your only solution, then you will love him and you will want to pursue him. You will want to run after him. I hope this doesn't come across as the do good or try harder message because no amount of doing good and trying hard is going to save you. Salvation is a free gift from God. But in light of that salvation, your heart should be so captured by Christ that it motivates you to run. And hopefully this passage encourages you to do just that. Rosie Ruiz, somebody you, some of you might know that name. She's from Cuba. She ran in the Boston Marathon 1979 and set the record for the fastest female time in the marathon ever, 1979 Boston Marathon. She raised suspicion, though, because her time was so fast, but also because other runners would come up to her after the race and start asking her questions like, what was your split time? What was your pace? And she didn't know what those questions meant, which is a problem. Doctors examined her, and they saw two things that were unusual. First of all, her heart rate was way too low for just having finished a marathon. But secondly, her heart rate was too high for the resting heart rate of a marathon runner. So none of it made any sense. Also, they noticed that as she crossed the finish line, she smelled vaguely like cigarette smoke. And then it emerged that there were pictures of her riding the subway during the marathon. So she dodged out at the beginning, hopped on the subway in Boston, hopped out at the end, smoked a cigarette, and ran across the finish line and was treated like a record setter. Obviously, her record was stripped from her. Don't cheat the Christian race. There's no shortcuts to sanctification. There's only running the race that Christ has marked out for us. Lord, what a privilege it is to be your servants. I pray that you would use this passage to motivate us to run the race that is marked out before us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.